Konnichiwa and hello everyone, this is Bree from Super Smash Hose, and we're smashing the patriarchy one episode at a time. to have Zane Dalla on the podcast with me. Zane, do you want to introduce yourself? So hey guys, my name is Zane, as Farine just said. Um, I am uh, 21 years old. I just graduated school in Rochester, New York. I went to Rochester Institute of Technology. I studied supply chain management there. Um, I am actually in at home in Houston, Texas right now because that's where I grew up. Um, due to everything going on with COVID, I actually came here during spring break and never went back. So hopefully my place is in check and uh, we'll know soon enough when I go back. But yeah, that's just a little bit about me. And so like, what is, because you asked a question on your Instagram earlier about like supply chain, and I have a really basic understanding of what supply chain is. If you had to explain it for dummies, like, what would you say? Okay, so if everyone could just literally look around you and look at everything you see, um, everything around you is due to a supply chain from um, how the materials and the product was sourced and how it was made to how it got to where you're sitting right now. So supply chain deals with all of that. And what, what we really aim to is getting products and, and ideas, services from point A to point D, B in the most efficient and effective manner. And like the quickest way and the cheapest way is the best way to put it. Okay, so um, I know a lot of news recently has been about like because of COVID-19 has been about localizing supply chains and kind of this idea of you know we can't rely on China or we can't rely on outside countries um so do you think like localizing supply chains is actually something that's really possible in this globalized era it's a very good question I'm really glad you asked that because in the interview that I'm going to have with my supply chain professor, that is a question that someone asked. So I'm glad you uh, brought that up now. So to answer your question, I I could see a push towards that because especially with countries these days are they're believing that we're going to have to, you know, self-rely on on ourselves. Like for example, Modi, prime minister of India, he basically said, this is a new era of self-reliance for India. Like that's what they're pushing to. And when you hear that, it's, it's interesting yet, you, I don't know if that's necessarily possible because of diversification. Like there's, there's a big problem in supply chain that we'll use actually the earthquakes in Japan as an example. So when the earthquakes in 2011 happened, um, a lot of these car companies like Toyota, uh, Honda, I don't remember the exact names, but they had, because their, their supply chain was, their manufacturing plants were hit so hard in Japan, it was hard for them to recover and get, um, uh, products out and get get their cars out. So if you were not, if you were able, if you were localized, I don't think that would be the best option, like the best way to do it because you're hedging risk. Like you're not really taking into account like literally natural disasters, other things that could happen within each each region. I hope that answer was sufficient. I hope it made sense. It, it really did. I never thought about that. Um, I, like you know, I quite often think that like, oh, it's best to source from your own country, support local businesses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But on the flip side of that, you're totally right. Like, Right. To your point though, it is, it is important to support, like to source locally. It is, it definitely is. But 
for when you're looking at large scale companies who are dealing with when, for example, um, Japanese companies, Chinese companies, we're all the trade is global, right? So you really need to have points everywhere to in, ensure to like hedge for that risk, to, if that makes sense. You gotta have that safety stop. So would you say that like, um, because this is the nature of this podcast, I turned everything into a feminist problem, which I know it isn't always. Um, but if you if you think about the fashion industry or the retail industry, for example, I know we're all very aware. Um, I think it's one of the most used examples is factories in third world countries um, and how they exploit workers. And that is used as part of their supply chain, like for fast fashion companies, Zara, H&M. We're all really aware of the consequences of that type of unethical supply chain management. But is there also like, and I don't know much about it, and I don't know if you do, um, but a move towards uh, environmentally sustainable sourcing of supply chains? So not on like the moral and ethical of human rights, but more environmental and the minerals we source and the plastics we use. Yeah. So... I can speak to the environmental sustainability uh, part a lot. So there had like in the past in the past years there have been so many initiatives um, and like standards that companies need to keep um, within their plants. And I've actually worked at um, a manufacturing plant, an engine plant that was that was literally barely had any waste. Like the the, the way they the way they were dealing with the waste com- uh, thirty years ago compared to now. Thirty years ago, it would they would never have passed and never been remotely close in a, in a safety audit, if that makes sense. And even now, and to, uh, to your point, because I've only been in the field for two, three years, so I don't want to generalize for every for everything and everyone. However, I do I do want to say that, like in edu- in an education standpoint, their uh, sustainability is really pushed. I know that I know that for a fact. Um, RIT, where I just graduated, has a whole mass. Like most schools have a master's in sustainability engineering for um, for health and safety, for uh, materials, for emissions, for all of that. There's there's definitely a push towards it. So I think it, it it's positive compared to the past. Um, there's always improvement. There's always a, a a want to continuously improve. And so to your point, I think there there is a push. I can't speak to the moral and ethic ethical parts that to you were saying before because I don't really know too much about it that's fair um and one last question on supply chain what can consumers especially consumers who want to be more conscious of their shopping habits um what can they do to learn more about the supply chain of their products like for example if I look around my room I don't know where half of this stuff came from like I look at the lipstick that's sitting on my desk and I know I bought it at Sephora, but I don't know where the metal came from. I don't know where the ingredients for the lipstick or the pigment. So what steps can consumers, is there any steps or is it all kind of not transparent to the outside world? And should it be like, are there benefits of it being kind of hidden? So it's interesting you say that. Um, There is a field in supply chain that has been pushed heavily and that's called blockchain. And essentially the goal of blockchain is to be able to trace um, every single step of a component. Like, for example, if you're eating strawberries and you scan the QR code of, of that's the, that strawberry package, 
blockchain technology wants you to be able to know exactly where this came from and like the, exactly what farm and what source it came from. So there is a push towards that. And I think you're right. Consumers do have the, they, they deserve the right to know wh where their products come from. Um, I, th I would want that too. So there is a push towards that. I don't know exactly where it is in the, in the process of becoming, you know, mainstream or if it will happen, but I know blockchain, like for, for example, blockchain is, you know, cryptocurrency, right? Yeah. So it's that same, it's that same technology um, that's going to be moved to supply chains. So that's what they want to do. And to your point, every consumer deserves to know. So I think there, there is progress that is happening. Okay, that's really interesting. And now I want to know way more about supply chain. Um, and this is basically just a plug for your next episode where you're going to be talking all about supply chain. Yeah, I'm, and trust me, I let me put this, a good source of my information is this professor. Um, I had him for five classes. He was, I'm just going to talk for 30 seconds about him. He was my, my, my favorite professor at all time. Let me put it this way. I hated waking up. I always do. I hate waking up. He, I three out of my five classes with him were eight a.m.s, and he made every single one enjoyable. And I, I, I cannot say that about any other professor that I think that could that could have done that for me. And he's just an incredible teacher. Incredible. He just has such a passion for the subject and his students. So I'm really excited to have him on. And if you are if you are interested in this, helped you, and you kind of want to kind of want to learn more, um, feel free to check out my podcast. Yeah, um, and on that note, I think at the beginning of this episode, we forgot to mention that Zane does have his own podcast, um, and you guys should all check it out. It's called On Your Mind. It'll all be linked um, in the description box of this episode and on our Instagram. But yeah, your next episode is going to be about supply chain, so we won't chat about it too much. But I think this is really cool, and I think that anybody who is interested in kind of more ethical consumerism or just knowing more about the world like you said, everything around us comes from somewhere and, you know, being informed about what that process looks like is really interesting. And I don't think um, a lot of us take the time to critique, like, the stuff around us and where it comes from. So moving on from supply chain, you are starting a job soon, right? Because you're graduating. Yes, I am. Um, I'm starting a job. I'm moving to Toronto, Ontario. Um, I'm starting to work for restaurant brands international so they're the parent company of tim hortons popeyes and burger king and yeah we're starting at the at the end of august and you know hopefully everything will be good to go by then so zane i expect free ice caps and birthday cake timbits for life yeah they are to your point they are to die for the ice caps man even like in the summer is a staple drink i feel really bad for you being stuck in houston right now because you can't actually enjoy one no, no, unfortunately, no. But I got their Popeye's chicken sandwiches, which are a hit in America. Um, the spicy ones are my favorites. Um, they're coming to Canada, and they are a must try for for you for you guys there. Trust me. All right, I haven't had Popeye's, but I will eventually when it comes here. And for UK listeners, there's actually a Tim Hortons in Birmingham, um, and also one in Ireland. There isn't one in London, but it's worth the one hour train ride to Birmingham just to get. At Tim Hortons, I've done it before. Trust me, it's a great idea. So you're you're pretty international, right? Like you grew up in Houston, you came to Calgary a lot in your summers, and now you're moving to Toronto. Does any aspect of that scare you? Like adjust oh well, and you went to university in New York. 
Um, I need to add one more thing. I lived in the UK as well. And you lived in the UK. Yeah. Amazing. Where in the UK? I lived in an area called Cobham. I was very young. I lived there when I was ages from four to six, so I barely remember the time. Like I remember the school. I remember like my friends there, but the re like the rest of the details, I was so little. I, like I was just so, you know, I didn't really have a big perspective of anything yet. Right. Okay. So clearly an international traveler. And how do you adjust to moving around all the time? Like, does it not? Do you ever feel like, oh, I made friends and then I have to move and. What is your adjustment process like? How do you deal with it mentally, and how do you deal with it like when you get to a new place? Do you have a routine of like, this is what I do to get accustomed to my new home? I don't really have an, a routine. I just kind of go with the flow. To be completely honest, I when when I've moved, I think what I what I sh one thing I I will say to people who are going, you know, if people are listening to the university and going about to start their university journey. So I think when I moved to Rochester, I, I kind of went with the flow and I, I didn't really, I wasn't really prepared for just the full university life. But when I, when I moved to a new place, I, it didn't really scare me. And even to your point now, it's for me, it's part of life. And I'm honestly really excited. Like I enjoyed my time in Rochester. I, I, I at the beginning when I, when I moved there, I did not. Um, but over time, I, uh, I really loved it, which I actually talk about in a, another podcast. I, I made about I had I gave an honest reflection of my undergraduate experience experience where I really opened up about it. Um, I go talk about all the ups and downs. So at the beginning I did not like it, but after a long time of like you know reflection and growth, I I came to really love the school. But I know and, and the area. But now I know it's time for me to leave and move to like a different place. And I think Toronto has been a dream of mine since I was a kid. So I just I've been so prepped for that. I'm excited to go to be to be completely honest. So. You're really excited to move, which I think is really great. Um, but is there any uncertainty around any of this? Like, you know, I know, so I was reading an article today from The Independent, um, and I finished my undergrad last year, and I searched vigorously for jobs, and I didn't get anything because I have a pretty useless degree, not going to lie. Um, and so I ended up doing a master's in something that's equally unemployable, but I love it, so it doesn't matter. Um, but I was reading this article today on The Independent about how jumping from a bachelor's to a master's just because of uncertainty of about a career isn't really a good reason to do a master's, which I completely agree with because I'm now almost done my master's and I still don't have a job or know what I'm doing. But when you finished your undergrad, when you were navigating like applying for jobs? Where do I want to work? Where do I want to live? What was that experience like for you? And what was the whole looking for jobs experience like? Was it quite easy? Or was it? Was there a lot of tension and difficulty around it? Um, okay, so I can walk you through kind of my, my whole yeah. job experience through university, and it'll kind of paint the picture for you, if that makes sense. So when I went into university, I started off as an industrial engineer. So the way RIT works is that in this program, in, the in their engineering programs, it's not a four-year program. It's a five-year program. One year, you have to work. You have to do a co-op. You have to do internships. So they really push for that. And we have career fairs where they, they look to hire. And their hire rate for all industrial engineers is like 90% for to get an internship in co-op. Like, like I'll speak to their co-op program. It is incredible. They really try to help you. So I had, I had that 
I did that. So I worked for an engine company, like I said before. Then I worked for um, a, a lens distribution company called Cooper Vision. So the the application process, um, the first time when I got that job, it was really once I went to the career fair. That's kind of how I got the job, and I I was really lucky. Um, it wasn't it wasn't as easy as I left engineering as I went to the school of business because the career fair for RIT wasn't really geared toward business business students. So then I was really I had to grind so much. I spent like I think 20, 30 hours a week applying, applying, applying to jobs all over US, Canada, just looking for for options. And it was so stressful. Like I'd get a few interviews, I'd go through it, and I think I did okay. Next thing you know, no, sorry, you didn't get the job. And it's like, are you serious? Come on. But the thing is, you just have to keep pushing. And I think for me, I there was moments I was like honestly, why the hell am I doing this? Like, like who, what's the point? Like, do I even care about this company? And the thing is funny enough, the, the RBI who I'm going to work for now, I actually worked for them last summer. So I had an internship with them. So this is when my next experience, my, my, yeah, before my next experience, they, they reached out to me and the only, like, it was crazy. I was talking to my dad about this yesterday. The only company that I did not apply to out of the millions of companies that I applied to reached out to me and here I am going into an interview with them that like it was incredible to me and so then as so then it went really well and I actually was in I went to Rochester and then I went to Toronto I, when I was in Rochester I went to Toronto for the interview basically what I'll say is they had a they had a lot it was a full day interview and it, ran, it went really well and then they, they tell you if you've been hired at the end of the day or not that's how it worked for us that day so then at that point I had the I accepted it immediately and in the summer, um, the internship basically worked. It was a 10-week program where you work on a project. And depending on the results of your project and how you do and how you present yourself and how you work for the company, you could be offered a full-time offer um, for next year once you finish your undergrad. I think it's absolutely wild. The one place you did apply to is where you're ending up working. Um, it just shows you that the universe works in incredibly weird and twisted ways. Um, so you're supposed to be starting in August. Has there been any uncertainty because of COVID around starting, maybe starting online? How is the on, like, I, I, I'm not expecting you to talk to like what the company has officially told you, but any like uncertainty in your mind or nervousness about that? Um, so actually what they've done, even so when, when COVID happened, they still had their internship programs um, before we were we were supposed to come into the office, and they moved them to all online. So they kept them; um, they're all they're all still hired, and they'll be working on projects. So when I saw they had actually announced that on LinkedIn, so when I saw that, I was I thought, man, that's incredible. So it kind of really eased my stress a little bit, or actually a lot. Um, and recently, they've um, told us even if we don't uh, have a onboarding in a different in an office, we might have it online. So we're, we're, I think we're okay in that sense. Okay. Well, that's really good because I know a lot of people, myself included, are really nervous about trying to find jobs in this climate and, you know, fearing that a lot of recruitment companies, or, um, sorry, a lot of the recruitment arms of companies have put hiring on freeze or that they're going to be unable to, you know, find um, ways to adapt to technology and to the quote unquote new normal I roll my eyes every time I say that because it sounds so ridiculous but right 
Yeah. But it's I... true. I think they're going to transition to all different ways of work. I, I really do. I think, I mean, this is kind of crazy, but I think this is the pandemic has shown like how a lot of jobs can be done remotely. And I think that that's, that's really interesting to me that it's taken this to kind of show that. And that, that might, that might end up being, you might see the workforce being changed a little bit because of that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And um, I'm not an economist. I don't know much about workforces. I don't know a lot about business. But I do know that um, from my feminist angle of things, the idea of work from home really does help provide that like work-life balance that women have been basically pushing for since they entered the workforce. Um, and yeah, I think you're going to see a lot of difference in the demographic makeup of of jobs and who will be working in for what companies and where, like, you know, I could be sitting here in my house in Calgary working for a company in India if I wanted to. Um, right. I think it does. Ha- I, that happens now too. I don't think all work can be put, put remotely, like someone's full job responsibilities. Like I think some days, like they'll, they'll be needing to go to work, but maybe in like the frequency of going to work maybe might might be altered and i think that's better for people's mental health too speaking about mental health have there been any like certain mental health challenges that you're comfortable talking about associated with like kind of this really transitionary period in your life as an adult that you're comfortable and want to voice of course it's the struggle and stress of not feeling like you're doing enough that everything you're doing is not sufficient and i think the matter of fact is that i mean i struggle with this today I struggle with this before like I, I I do this now and I'm taking measures to kind of ease myself and it's 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 more of my own thing of like I just don't like to sit around and be doing nothing but I think for for a lot of people it's they feel like they're stressing about such small things in their life and if you take a if you take a you know a a deep breath and look at everything from a holistic perspective. Like, look, I didn't do, I wanted to get this, 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 and this done today, but I only did this and this, you know what I mean? And then people kind of stress about that. And then because they're stressing about that, then the next, next thing that's bad for them, it couples with that. And then it adds. And then it's kind of, there's a book called the subtle art of not giving a fuck. I, I, I don't know if you've read it by Mark Manson. I have not. No. Okay. And it basically, basically what it says is that, it's called the feedback loop from hell. And I, this is, I've, t- I've taken this with me since I've read it, since I read the book. And basically what it says, when you, when something goes wrong in your life, you either, you know, can brush it off or basically in the mindset that I, I've had before. And that I think that like people struggle with is that, okay, I didn't do this. Damn. Like I'm so stupid. Like I'm an idiot. And then the next thing goes wrong. Then that couples with that. And then if then there's a loop, then you're, you're, then you're like, why am I stressed about this? Then like, why am I stressed about being stressed about this? And then it keeps going and going. And then it just ends up, you're just like getting so upset with yourself. And I think what people need to realize is that it's okay to just take a deep breath and relax and everything's going to be okay. Like there's no need to be stressing. Like if that makes sense, I don't know. I kind of just went off on, on a whole little tangent there, but no, I loved it. I'm smiling like an idiot because this is the most relatable thing I've heard. So I'm constantly, I have this feedback cycle in my head all the time. Like, I'm not doing enough. Like, I'm technically doing my master's right now, but like, I don't have a job because of COVID for the summer. And 
I keep thinking that I'm sitting at home and doing nothing. And like, I constantly am like, I'm not doing anything. Like I'm just sitting around. And every time I say this, my parents are like, what? Like you're constantly doing stuff. Like you're doing your podcast stuff. You volunteer, you do that. They're like, I see you study all the time. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't feel like I'm doing anything. I'm not doing anything productive. I don't have a job. And like, it's exactly what you said. I like, you know, I'll have a list. I'll be like, I want to work out today. I want to do these five things and this. And if I only did three of them, then I hate myself. And it's like, that type of mentality just isn't healthy. And I think so many young people, again, this might be a bit of a tangent, but I think we're conditioned, like our generation especially, to be incredibly fucking competitive, especially related to like careers and education. And you never want to stop. Like, you constantly have to be doing something and I think social media is really bad for that as well um because you know we're constant like LinkedIn which I don't know if you consider a social media but like I do but like you're constantly looking at like what your friend's job updates are like where they're interning and everybody's making sure that they're doing something and you don't want to be the person for yourself it might not even be related to other people but like I think there's this constant pressure to perform which puts mental health on the back burner and then when we are performing things for our mental health it's almost performative like oh I have to show everybody that I'm taking a bubble bath and relaxing to remind everyone to have self-care um and yeah I think a lot of young people now are faced with this constantly competing high pressure environment you know top 25 under 25 mentality like the hustle culture being an entrepreneur all of these things that everybody wants to be super successful before they're 30 but everyone's also burning out at 25 right and i think it's important to to note that it is it is very like it, it's important to like have the drive and want to be successful that, that, that having like having that you know, hunger is, is a good thing. That kind of is the reason you're, you are where you are in right now in life. So it's not about losing that. It's not like, Hey, stop, stop that drive. It's more of like, Hey, understand, like, it's okay to like, don't be so stressed. It's, I think to your point, it's every day you're, you're like, what I'm, you're doing, your parents telling you, you're doing so much. And you're like, no, I'm not. But the, the thing is, it's because you're not seeing the results. You don't see the results that right then and there. And that's what makes you kind of feel like you're not doing enough. Yeah. Do you have tips on have ever been able to like step back and be like, yeah, like I'm okay with the output that I've done today. And like, I am going somewhere, even if it's incremental, like that you can share with listeners. I'm glad, I'm glad you, uh, you said that I started this last week. My friend, um, Dante taught me this and Dante is the guy who, um, does the un- honest undergraduate um, reflection with me on my podcast series and he's he's his his mind is very similar to mine in, in that sense like he struggles with the same problems you and i have like i've never i've only person i've talked to this much about these issues is him so what he's done and what he told me to do is you know don't write like you know when you write these are the things i want to get done today you can write 10 things down and then you're looking at 10 things you're like holy crap i got 10 things to do but if you really just write honestly three to five max three to five attainable things smaller goals like smaller goals that are attainable like i i know i just i just went like yo go to 10 to five or three 
but like these are small goals. It could be anything like, Hey, I want to do the dishes today. Hey, I want to read one chapter. Hey, I want to run one mile. Like this, it can be the smallest thing, but when the feeling you get when you cross that off and I've been doing it for one week, so I have a small sample size, but I think I'm going to say it's, it's a strong correlation that I'll keep going this way. I'm feeling it's, it's helping that the small doing the small things and appreciating you doing every single small thing is important and you need to do that. And then it'll, it'll help you get to the bigger, bigger tackle, the bigger problems. It's like anything, any macro problem can be, you know, brought, uh, broken down into micro problems. In my opinion, there are small root causes that you can solve to get the fix the bigger picture. I think that's a really great idea and I'm going to start cutting down my to-do list because like you said, yeah, I have a to-do list of like 10 things every day and I don't manage to do 10 things every day. I manage to maybe do three um, or four successfully and I even find, I don't know how you feel about the pod, about running your own podcast, but um, I think a lot of people think you just like turn on a mic and chit chat and then upload it. Um, I'll tell you that a lot more than that a lot more and I found even just doing something as simple as making an Instagram post or like writing a caption will take me so much longer than I thought like before I used to just I wouldn't keep track of how long I was spending on these things and about a week ago two weeks ago um, I just started logging how long I spent on each minuscule like even if it sounds so small like making an instagram post i started logging how much time that's taking me out of my day just to see all of the things that because when you're on social media especially when you're doing something social media based like a podcast it doesn't feel like work right because you kind of just think like oh i'm i'm on social media like that's leisure time mm-hmm. but this isn't my personal social media right it's technically related to to a product i'm not trying to sell, but like a project I'm working on. And so I never used to really think about how much time I was spending on things like Instagram stories or posts. And now that I've started logging it, I'm like, I'm doing a lot of work. It might not, the audience or people might not read it as a lot of work because it's one post on their feed. But when you take a minute to actually look at what you're doing, even if it seems small, like you're exactly right. It, it adds up to a big picture. Exactly. Exactly. And okay, let me ask you this. When you said you have usually your list is how many, how long? Like, um, I would say six to 10. Six to 10. Okay. So on average, how many of them do you, can you cross off on a day? Three to four. <laughs> okay. So that leaves around, we'll say two to three that you have not crossed off. Mm-hmm. So when you look at them at night and you're like, how do you feel when you look at them? Like, I'm sure you look at them and you're like, oh, shh. Like, like, how do you feel? Yeah, like, I feel like shit. Like, and the other thing is, I do the complete opposite of what you said. I don't put down, like, micro tasks. I put down, like, big picture things as if I'm going to do them in one day. Like, for example, today on my list, um, I had, like, mm-hmm. writing out a contract, like a partnership agreement, plus, a bu- like, whatever, five other things. And I put down writing a partnership agreement as if that was going to take me a day to do or like a few hours out of my day to do. I spent three hours just researching Jeez. what a partnership agreement yeah, is. Exactly. So if if you broke that down to say, like for for example, because in a day, three hours is a long time. So if you did re- research that part, 
then what's the next step? What would be the next step for research? Like the next step is start with a base outline, like look for a base outline and then edit that outline and then, you know, send the draft to the people I need to send it to for approval. And then that's five, four or five steps right there that you, that are so micro, that'll be so much, that'll, you'll feel so much better when you cross it off each single one versus one big one. Yeah. And so, cause it'll take so long to look at it. That is really like, it sounds, hearing you say that sounds so silly. I'm like, what, why did I never think about just breaking down my tasks? Um, yeah. But here, like having you say, like, just break it down seems so logical. Mm-hmm. I did the same. I told the same thing to my sister. She was having the same problem. Literally two days ago, we talked about this. <laughs> I love it. I love it that we can all help each other. Cause I think we all have similar problems. We're all doing different things. Like we're clearly very different people have different interests, um, different career paths, but we all kind of deal with the same existential problems. Right. With, exactly. Yeah. Like we're all like, we're all, we're all human at the end of the day. Wait, I have a question for you though. So I, I obviously you saw I, lo- I added you on LinkedIn, yeah. How, and I um so I looked at like one of the things you you worked on and the things you did. Is something about so you in you help spread Afghan culture, Ismaili culture in Japan. So how like how are you how okay so how do you do that in 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 a country that you know doesn't really, I are they is the Japanese culture very accepting? What were they accepting of the Afghan culture? So, in. I think there's two separate parts of that question. So question one is like the government relations between Japan and Afghanistan. And questions two is like the civil like population, like the people of Japan and the people of Afghanistan. So yes. Japanese people are like stereotypically really homogenous. They're slightly racist, no offense, um, but like they are, uh, it's a very homogenous country. So whether it's Afghan or not, um, Japanese people have a somewhat negative view of foreigners and particularly with Afghan people there's a one of my friends is actually in Pakistan my Japanese friend is in Pakistan right now and she went to the Afghan border and she was talking about how on her social media a lot of Japanese people's only view of Afghanistan is the Taliban um so that is I think people to people there is a huge disconnect there right like Japanese people don't have a necessarily great understanding of Afghan culture. I mean, I don't think they think Afghan culture even exists. In their minds, Afghan culture was completely destroyed by the Taliban and the war in Afghanistan. Now, on the flip side of that, the Japanese government and the Afghan government have a very strong relationship. And I think um, Japan... uh, is the fourth largest overseas development donor in the entire world, which is insane. Like the biggest are the US, the UK, and Germany. And Japan's right behind that. Like those are huge powerhouse donor countries. Obviously the US has a big interest in having giant um, development aid budgets. Same with the UK and same with Germany, right? Like as the head of the EU. And it's almost surprising that Japan is number four. Um, but Japan plays a pivotal role in developing third world countries. It spends a lot of its resources on this. And the number one country that Japan actually sends aid to and spends money on development projects, things like infrastructure, um, scholarships, sending technical expertise is in Afghanistan. It took me a long time to build to that and I gave it away at the very end. But yeah, Afghanistan is the number one receiver of Japanese overseas development aid, which is a huge deal because you never think about Japan being involved in the Middle East, particularly not in Afghanistan, 
But even in the reconciliation mission that was headed by the United Nations in Japan, the lead of that mission was a Japanese national. So the government actually has a very strong interest in Afghanistan. It sponsors so many um, scholarships and programs, sports and education scholarships for Afghan youth to come live and work in Japan. Yet there is difficulty for Japanese people to actually know about Afghan culture. They don't really interact on a day-to-day basis. So it's still like pretty like divided. Yeah, I would say people to people, it's still really divided. Um, so the way that we actually like helped change that perception is, especially in the summer, Japan has lots of festivals, which are called like Matsuri. Um, there's one like, there's like multiple every weekend in the summer. And it's like street street stalls and music and like your typical summer festival. And we would often try to go to these festivals and like we'd take Afghan made sweets and dress up in Afghan clothes and talk about Afghan culture. We also used to house um, like tours at the embassy for school kids and university students where we would talk about things like, you know, um, for the younger kids, like Afghan music and what Afghan clothes is like. And we would maybe like try out Afghan food. And then with the older kids, we'd talk about things like the war, how it's affected education, how it's affected women, but also how things are getting better to try and improve the general public's knowledge. Gotcha. Gotcha. So did you, I'm guessing you enjoyed the occasion. Like you enjoyed doing it. You like had a great time. Um, I don't know if I can say this. I mean, my podcast, I can be honest, whatever. I studied international relations in my undergrad. I love politics. And for a long time, I thought I wanted to be a diplomat. Okay. So working in an embassy was like my dream job, right? Like I was like, oh my God, like this is my dream internship. Like this is what I want to do with my life. And I realized a lot of it is just schmoozing. Like it's going to parties and drinking wine and you don't actually do a lot of work and there's a lot of behind the scenes corruption. And it's not just because, you know, people are going to say like, oh, well, of course there's corruption. It's the Afghan government, but I'm not talking about the Afghan side. Like obviously there was corruption on the Afghan side, but also on the Japanese side. Okay. And it's just, it's, it's not exactly what I expected. It's a lot more about status than it is about actually doing things that matter. Um, and how would you like to see change? How would I like to see change? Yeah. Um, how would you change it? I mean, I think it starts with being more, like government agencies have to be really transparent to audience, um, like citizens about what they're doing like the the everyday japanese person probably wouldn't know that japan and afghanistan have such close government relations um and i think if they were more aware of that then they'd hold the government more accountable to like what exactly are they doing with that money like what's happening what projects are being funded are these projects actually going to make a difference or are they just because so and so politician owns a construction company and wants to send technical expertise that the Afghan government is going to pay for to make their Japanese construction company a lot of money. So I think transparency and accountability, which requires the public to be interested, which I don't know if the public is interested. Like, people are jaded by politics right now, and domestic politics is enough for people that adding a layer of, oh, you also now have to care about the international, I think is 
for a lot of people, too much. Because they're like their focus would be on other places and jobs. Yeah, I think people are like, wait, so you're telling me I have to know all of the weird stuff that's happening in Japan and like be politically engaged on a national level and politically aware and engaged on an international level? Like, I think for for me that's really hard to understand because like I'm a politics student, so my brain is always thinking of everything in a political way. But the everyday person. Their conception of politics is, oh, every four years, it's time to vote. So it needs public interest, but the public interest isn't necessarily there. That's the problem. Yeah, that's the problem. And, like, you could say that, like, oh, like, well, then we just need better professionals. Um, But who votes in these professionals? And sometimes they're not voted in, right? Like, they're just picked based on merit, like, not merit, but, like, let's say the prime minister is elected and then he gets to staff his ministries. He's just going to pick people based on what projects he wants done or she, sorry, I shouldn't assume it's a man. Yeah, you shouldn't. <laughs> Admittedly, I'm very bad at that. I, my brain is still so heteronormative. I constantly assume people are he. Why is that though? That's interesting. I mean, I can't speak to like why. Okay. Yeah. I'll get you answer that first, I guess. I think a lot of it has to do with like social um, conditioning, right? Like you grow up and everything's mankind, everything's history. Like you just assume that everything is male. And even though I'm a feminist and I'm like aware that that's not true, especially when things have to do with somebody being in a position of power, I automatically think that it's male, which just shows you that even the most like, I'm not trying to say I'm the most woke person, but like theoretically I'm woke, right? Like I'm supposed to be more politically correct than your average person considering my interest in feminism and stuff. And I still fuck up. It's like just embedded in my brain and I'm trying really hard to work on it. But sometimes it just happens. Also, sorry, I know that this is kind of like going back to the beginning, but I had a few more questions about supply chain, but I don't want to ask you too much and bother you with like overbearing amount of questions, considering you're going to be doing an episode on your podcast all about supply chain. But you know what? If you have a few more questions, go for it. Like, I promise I, the, the rest, will, it'll be fine. We'll be good. I can I can talk I can talk about so many different alleys if you want because like there, there's so many different questions we can tackle within supply chain. It's never going away. Like for think about this, you think Amazon's ever going away anytime soon? I wish, but no. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Like Amazon, you think? But like, do you think consumers buying any products was going away? Any, no, I soon? mean, if anything, like COVID has shown us that like we don't give a fuck if we can go to malls. Like we're still gonna buy shit online. Like I do not care if I can walk into a store. I will spend three hours shopping online. Yeah. And like, to your point, like, you know what, like a big thing COVID has shown too with the pandemic is that how important having a, a good supply chain is like at the, we're at a point where companies are scrape Like there, there are so many firms like that are scraping for it. They want every, they need to get every, any bit of revenue they can get back. Right. So if you're having the most efficient supply chain, because you're always needing to order and deliver products, the cheaper you're able to do it, the better you're able to stay afloat. Because right now it's about staying afloat. So that's an interesting point. And it's something, whenever I hear that word, it, the word cheap, I, I wonder about like the ramifications of that. So like 
like you said, a lot of the times, like the, the the motive for these companies is always a profit motive, like efficiency. Let me, let me, before we get into this, before we get, I'm sorry, let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. I did not mean cheap. I did not mean cheap. So there are some like to your sustainability thing, there are a lot by cheap. I mean, when if there's, if you can get a product for the same quality, the same quality for a cheaper price, you're going to want it. If you're, or if you're able to deliver the same quality product in a more efficient, in a better way, in a cheaper way, in a cheaper way, in that sense, that that's what I'm saying. Not, not like the cheaper of the quality of the product or anything like that. Sorry. No, no, that's fine. Um, yeah, I was just going to ask, like, what do you think, like price efficiency is still at the heart of a lot of the, because of COVID is still at the heart of a lot of these companies, um, supply chain, like what's the right word, like mission or like value? Or do you think that now it's more about like, let's say we'll, we'll hike up the price, but we're going to make sure it's local or it's sustainable or it's ethical, whatever their tick box for, you know, social impact is, it could be different, right? Like, I think it's really hard nowadays to find a company that is both environmentally sustainable, you know, like morally and ethically with who it employs, where it's locally made. Like, I think that's a lot of tick boxes that we're asking for that might not be possible. So they're probably going to have one, right? That they're like, oh, this is our, this is our thing. Yeah. So is your question, is your question, do you think like people are resorting to like, is like the cheaper, less quality option and like people are resorting to that more because of right now is, no, that, is that your question sorry I didn't phrase it well I was gonna say are do you think companies are still more likely to put producing cheap like making sure their product is cheap at the um, versus their product being um consumer content yes so I'm really glad you asked that so there's this thing in supply chain or in, in a lot of things it's called the triple bottom line so essentially the triple bottom line, it's a framework and it recommends that companies commit to focusing on the, these three main concerns, people, planet, and the profit. So a lot, a lot of, a lot of companies actually have to follow this. They, that's the, that's the, that's in their mission statement. They, if they're not, if, let me put it this way, if a company does not kind of focus on the triple bottom line, it's going to bite them in the ass. And in, in my opinion, because their, their public opinion and kind of like how their long-term effect, the long-term effects of them, you know, not adjusting to what the world is going to, it's going to cause so many negative ramifications for them. So let's see. So if they're trying to buy, let me put it this way. If, if you're at a, if we're making, I don't know, what, what is something you just recently bought? I bought paint. I bought oil paint. Paint. Okay. So that company that you're, that you're, um, that you just bought from, let's say that they, this paint costs them $1 to make right with the current quality. But now they're in a, they're a little cash strapped, so, mm-hmm. so they have an option to switch their supplier to a paint comp, to a paint manufacturer or a paint paint, paint supplier. Sorry, that you, they can get it down to eighty cents. So they're about to save twenty cents per per paint, for example. However, the quality is so bad that where, for example, the the percentage like it's proven that you know it's a, a lot higher. It's a lot like more likely that the paints will not be up to the standards that the consumer will want. So when you, so say if you buy that same paint now, and Mm -hmm. now it's, now they're using the worst quality, you're not going to be happy with that paint, right? You're going to be like, what the heck just happened? I like, why can't I not paint with this? What are you, what are you going to do with that paint? 
I mean, I won't use it. I'll go and buy different paint, or I'll return it or complain. Right, you'll return it. You'll so first thing you'll do is you'll first thing you can return it. So then the company either lose they lose the money on that sale, so they'll have to give you a refund if, even if they don't. Then they just lost a whole customer that like who would re recurringly buy from you. So the long term effect of changing your quality and going like being very cheap, cheap quote unquote cheap now, is very detrimental to you know their their long-term vision and if they want to be successful in the long-term, like the, the risk is very high if they do that. So maybe I'm really cynical and I'm sorry if that's the case. I'm not trying to come across as a total. Bear. No, no, no. I, I think, I think where you're going with this and I am fine. That's fine. If you say it. Okay. I think a lot of what you said hinges on the idea that consumers are aware. Um, and so how much of this triple bottom line or like um, keeping to the standards of the triple bottom line is just window dressing. Like if a company says, um, like, okay, so for example, something I know a lot about to, to give it a story because I don't know how to explain it without an anecdote is um, the cosmetic industry moving towards like vegan and not like cruelty-free makeup is a big thing right now. And like using makeup mm -hmm. that isn't tested on animals. Um, and so if a company isn't tested on animals, it has like a little bunny on it, on the packaging. But any company that sells in China is legally required to test on animals. Even if they don't test on animals in Canada, they're testing on animals in China. So like a big company like L'Oreal, for example, they might never test on an animal in North America, but the company as a whole still does. And so on their official website, they don't have a leaping bunny, but under their cruelty-free like um, text box, they they write like a really vague statement which says, you know, we are committed to be against animal testing and we abide by the laws in the countries where we operate. So they don't directly say, oh, we we do animal tests, we abide by the law. Okay. The laws in China make them, and that might lead a consumer to believe, oh, they're you know, they're committed to this fight against animal cruelty. And there's this assumption that consumers are aware enough to be like, um, consumers are aware enough to know whether or not companies are actually being as responsible as they could be. I, was yeah. that even winded? No, I, I get your question. And I think when, when, if you take, so two, I'll have two answers for this. So to speak to your, like the makeup industry and like the industries that I've been in, I cannot speak to, like, I think from what I've seen, I, ha I have no problems with them, like the, the cruelty and all that, because that, that's not what the industries I've been in. So I don't, I don't know to that. Mm -hmm. um, but for your, the L'Oreal point in China, if like, and this is just my personal stance, I, there's no way to really monitor how they, how they do it. Like, I can't give you an answer is what I'm kind of trying to say. I don't want to misspeak or overspeak, mm -hmm. but all I can say is I know their statement is vague. And if, if it, like they, if they're in the countries and like, for example, the U S and Canada, they do not test on animals, right? Mm -hmm. Or China, they're obligated to, right? Yeah. They're obligated to by law. So I think that's more of on the country. If China is saying you have to do that, then like L'Oreal doesn't really have a choice. Right. So some, some cosmetics companies and, and it's a market decision, right? Some, some companies have said, well, we just won't sell in China. So there are some brands that you just cannot find in China, but China's a huge cosmetics market, right? So this mm -hmm. is where the company has to decide what is more important. Is profit and an access to a 
whatever incredibly large cosmetics industry more important or is our quote unquote values of not testing on animals more important and when we talk about like the triple bottom line and putting ethics at the heart you would then assume that they're not going to go for the profit motive right they're going to say we're going to stand by our values which some companies have done and then l'oreal has but it's presented as it has and then consume like I guess it's it's back to this idea that like are consumers informed enough yeah. to, to be aware of that? Um so Okay, I'll start off by personally saying I, I don't I, I I don't know anything about know much about the industry or I don't I don't know I don't condone I don't think it's good to test on animals. I'll start off by saying that. Um however when you when you when you make the comparison for the companies, it's like we'll either compromise your ethics or lose out on a profit. The, the, the only problem from a business standpoint, which I get, and I understand the issues is that one, there's the, ch- the problem that they're obligated to do it. And mm. so if that's in order to get into that market, they have to do that. And I'm not saying that's right. And the, the, the CEO can, I don't know what the CEO fully truly believes. And, but there is a there there is a profit and money standpoint, and I get that, and that is your job as a CEO. That is what you're supposed to do. And if it wasn't for these big companies, if if you're L'Oreal, if you're not going to do it, your your competitor is definitely going to do it, and they're going to take that whole lion's share from you. So that could be their motive into why they do that. So there's no argument to say that if L'Oreal, which is one of the biggest companies, doesn't do it, and L'Oreal owns companies like Estee Lauder, right? It's a conglomerate. Yes. Um, and sorry, I'm talking about makeup because I don't know a lot of other industries. Um, but if could you not say on the flip side of what you said? So you said that if L'Oreal does it, their competitor will. Mm-hmm. But could you also not say that? Look, L'Oreal holds a lot of weight in this industry, like in any industry. There's always two or three, you know, kind of big companies that hold a lot of weight. L'Oreal holds a lot of weight. If they don't, and if they, you know, also talk to other CEOs and stuff, and they say, "Look, we're one of the biggest companies, and we're not going to do this." the governments to change right so i think if l'oreal wants to do for example if they they want to do that i think it would take a collaboration with a lot of these firms and like they would need to join together to make a big point if one does it it's it's really it's going to be really hard to create that ripple effect however when you have two or three that that multiplies it by that much more so i mean and then the, the problem is then you risk by, by taking the stand and I, if that's what they want to do, like I, 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 like I said, I'm not for animal cruelty none, none, like I don't, I don't wear makeup or anything like that. So I'm like, like you said, it's a hard industry for me to talk to, but all I can say is when you do that, you risk, a, you like you you and your company risk the, like the, the possibility of upsetting a whole country and like your relations, like if you're, you're an American company, L'Oreal is right. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure it's American. Like listeners, go and fact check yourself. But like, yeah, yeah. So I think there could be. Then the Chinese government will say, "Okay, you know what? Stop selling to these people." Mm-hmm. Because because it's already there. Like, I it depends. Well, the, the Chinese government. I mean, I I can't speak for the Chinese government, but they can. I mean, if they say, you know what, screw that. We don't want to. We don't want these people. Like, we we they can fight back. Like, we all know they could. And that's kind of what that's what the risk is. Right. Um, so this whole L'Oreal example, I guess it just made me think that like, 
when com whenever companies say that they're doing something for sustainability or for people or diversity, it it's wind. I always read it as window dressing. And similarly with supply chain, if a company says like, oh, you know, we make sure we only use organic or fair trade. Mm -hmm. Um, my next question is always, oh, okay, but this is non-GMO or this is fair trade, but who are the people mm -hmm. who are working? No, I, I get that. It's like, I'm, it's, it, it's, I'm glad you, it's funny you say that because you don't default to truth with these industries. Yes. That is a really good way to put it. I don't. And maybe that's just me. Maybe I am so conditioned to critic, to be critical about everything is that I'm like, I don't know, like there has to be something wrong. You can't automatically go from being a profit hungry corporation to caring. Right. Yeah. And so I think, I don't think you're the only person who feels this way. There's, 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 there's a lot of people who definitely do feel this way. Like I, I, I've definitely seen it. Um, yeah. All right, Zane. I'm sorry for asking you so many intense questions. I, to the listeners, I've treated him really meanly. And I think <laughs> if you go listen to his actual podcast, you can learn a lot more, um, from people who are much more educated than me and they'll probably ask him questions that make sense. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on our podcast. And um, if you want to tell people where they can find you, what you podcast about, and yeah, a little more information before we Yeah, end. so first off, thank you, Farine, for having me on. I really appreciate this this uh, one-hour grilling of, of, of yours. Uh, it's been a great time, to be honest. No, it's, been, it's been really fun. I really enjoyed the questions you asked. Like, honestly, you, I, I really enjoyed it. So thank you. Um, so yes, I do have a podcast, and it's uh, called On Your Mind. Um, and it has its Instagram and Twitter, and I'll share that later. But basically, what I want to speak to is the mission of it. And basically, what I why I started this is that, you know, in today's world that everyone is focused on like 100 people's opinion. There's the 100 select a few of people that, that are so important that we really care, whose opinion we, we really care about. However, for me, and what I've realized in my life is that you can learn something from every single person in your life. So what my podcast does is I have a lot of friends and family of mine and people that I found very interesting in my life. And we talk about um, subjects that are important to them. So every, so in every episode, you can learn something new. Um, some of the, I'll give you some examples. We talked about, uh, I talked about with a friend. That's a really good episode. We talked about, um, he's about to work for Bank of America. So we talked to your point, we we're talking about like another, another corporate world. He was talking about the food industry. So about like Grubhub. And how like a food food uh, delivery companies like that have been um, not haven't been really fair to um, small businesses and small restaurants. So that that's just an example. There's but there's a different range of topics, and basically it gives it gives people a platform to talk about something they're passionate about, and it gives listeners um, an opportunity to learn something new within every episode. So and hopefully one day we'll be able to get Farine on it. I'd love to hear her opinions. And uh, only time will tell. So maybe she'll give me an answer. Uh, hopefully soon. <laughs> I would gladly go on your podcast and bother you for another hour. Um, it, would, it would be a pleasure. But thank you guys all for listening. Please follow Zane. I think, you know, as everyone knows, we talk about like on Super Smash Bros. We have a pretty narrow focus. Um, and I think that's great. But it's also great to talk about a broad range of things. And I'm the type of person who like when I consume podcasts, I consume I don't actually consume that many feminist podcasts. I consume a lot of like your type of podcast where I'm learning from different people on like random subjects. 
So I think everyone should go follow, check out their Instagram. Everything will be linked. And thank you so much for listening. 